Welcome to OceanFit's Onshore Podcast, where Andre Slade, that's me, meets the unordinary people of the open water swimming and water safety community onshore to talk about their adventures, lifestyle and passion for the offshore. In this episode, I meet up with John Locko, the founder of Melbourne's famous Brighton Icebergers and who has braved the icy waters of Brighton nearly every day since 1973. Today I'm honoured to talk to John Locko. He is Brighton royalty. John is the founder of the Brighton Icebergers and he's also been the mayor of Brighton, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you, Andre. Thanks for those very kind words. Not deserved, but thank you. Now, let's go back before the Brighton Icebergers. Brighton and Bayside here in Melbourne. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Not too many people would believe you from outside the state, but it really is. What did the scene look like down here before open water swimming became something? Well, well as you say, it's a beautiful neighbourhood. Uh, we're very fortunate to live in Bayside, Brighton. Uh, the, the scene is probably busier now than it's ever been, but it's uh, a Bayside area and people have enjoyed the, the great facility of Port Phillip Bay. And how did it come to be that you started the Brighton Icebergers? Well, it's basically, I, uh, there's a great friend of mine, Professor uh, Doug Booth, who, who was a professor at the University of Dunedin and Otago for a number of years. Uh, he's an ex-AFL, VFL-AFL footballer, and he used to win the mile race on the MCG when they held the grand final day. He, he is a 17-year-old and myself is a 23-year-old. Uh, we started uh, swimming in Port Phillip Bay, doing what everyone else was doing at the time, basically dipping in and out until we realised, well, uh, look, it's, you're better off staying in a critical period of time and in, and, and seeing what what what, you know, what the consequence of that was. And out of that, we, we started extended cold water swimming, trying to get the, the kilometre or and and the old the old half mile, and then of course the uh, the mile, the winter mile. That became a thing for us to do, and we, we eventually got that done. But then we realised it wasn't that hard to do, and people have, and, and and myself and others since then have taken it out beyond the mile to, well, people do incredible times. And you know, the great John Van Whistle, for example, he can spend an hour and a half in the water. You know, sans wetsuit, up to an hour and a half, two hours, doing his training run. So that's how it started. We we looked at like extended cold water swimming, other than just dipping. And it wasn't anything official back then, was it? It was just a no, group of mates. No, it was just basically basically individuals turning up and doing whatever they did. And uh, but out of that, you know, I started off, and and people started to join me. My great mate Robert Hooper, um, another fellow called Greg Fountain, and we we were we were a core of it for a long time. And then gradually, other people joined on, and uh, well, away the icebergers went. And so, when did it start to look something like an, an official club? Oh, well, I would say uh, early 90s and beyond, probably in the middle to late 90s. I, I started off an event at the uh, uh, the Middle Brighton Bars, which the Philistines wanted to pull down. Um, but anyway, we, we managed to get that org- organised. I started an event there uh, called the Harry Raysbeck Winter Mile. And that was, that was, I think, first held in 1997. And from there, you know, other, other you know, events have uh, occurred and developed. 
and people have turned up to swim on a consistent and a persistent basis. And so what did what did swimming look like within inside the baths? Well, it was just basically people uh, doing doing their own thing, really. You know, whatever they could manage, they did. And uh, but look, swimming in cold water is only possible if you've got facilities to go to onshore to warm up. I mean, it's it's a real tough task if you don't have hot showers or a sauna or a steam room. Now, in the early days, well, well there was a very very modest hot water service. No sauna and no steam room. But now all those facilities are sort of first rate and first class down there. You've got a steam room at the um, at the bars themselves and over the adjacent to the bars at the Royal Brighton Yacht Club, you've got both a steam and sauna and, and, and great dressing rooms and shower facilities. So what did the bars look like before the renovation? Well, the bars, well, there was two sets of bars, actually. There was a set of bars at Brighton Beach and, and the set that currently exists at uh, the Middle Brighton Baths. And previously around Port Phillip Bay, there was a number of uh, different sets of baths. But over the course of time, uh, they fell into disrepair, fell into the sea, and they weren't renewed. And uh, Brighton Beach Baths, well, they were taken off us in the late 70s, 77, 78. And the council at the time promised that, uh, all right, we're going to lose the Brighton Beach bars, but economically we can't afford to run two, which was a nonsense they could have. Uh, and we'll keep Middle Brighton Baths in, in a first-rate uh, condition, which they didn't do. They reneged on their promise. And you're a big part of making sure that they are around today? Massively. I mean, I led the campaign, got myself elected to the council, uh, um, I, I, I formed then, I got a deed of delegation put through the, uh, the, the, the Brighton City Council at the time and I became chairman of a committee of management and uh, administered the place as a committee of management under a deed of delegation uh, for 12 years. So that would have been from about 1986 to 1998 when the uh, recalcitrant Premier of Victoria, Kennett, decided that we only lived in an economy and not in a society and uh, took it out of our hands and gave it a private enterprise and and so on. But, uh, you know, uh, that's what happened. So getting into council was really about saving the barbs. Absolutely it was. And then how did you become the mayor from that? Well, you, you, well when you're in, in, in the council, you do what you have to do as a councillor and uh, – they uh, they elect you. Other councillors elect you. So I was fortunate enough to be elected. Something I didn't seek actually, but you know, you've got to honour what what's happening and the processes. And I was an eleven year councillor, and uh, I became the mayor. And how long did that reign go for? Oh, I was the mayor for, for you're appointed for a year, so I was the mayor for ninety two, ninety three. I was a city councillor for eleven years. And then the bars went through a renovation. Well, they went through a, not a renovation; they went through a complete reconstruction, and that was a result of a uh, of a big political battle to see that uh, happening. Because at the time, the recalcitrant Brighton Council decided, in their ignorance, to pull the facility down on the pretext that the ratepayers of Brighton couldn't afford it. What a nonsense! It was rebuilt in 1986 with a grand total of four hundred thirty-five thousand dollars which today would not even buy you a third of a block of land in Studley Street, East Brighton. So it was a complete and total nonsense. It was penny-pinching nonsense. Anyway, so as a result of that, it became a very political battle. And uh, the, those 
that had the, the mind to save the Brighton Bars, led by myself, well, we sought office and, and we got ourselves elected to the council because in the end it was a political decision. 12 councillors voting. If you didn't have 7 out of 12 votes, uh, then we are going to lose the Bars. In the end, we had 11 out of 12 votes. We refused to accept the, the, the vote of one person. It was contrary to the, the process of reconstructing the Bars throughout the whole course of the debate and then all of a sudden, in the end, wanted to be on our side. But uh, his vote didn't matter and didn't count, nor did he. He's he's become on the wrong side of history, you'd say. Absolutely, yes. And so we had the uh, the Brighton Icebergers who were based at the Baths. Yes. Uh, but now we have two Icebergers. Well, what happened in 1998, uh, a consortium of, of people decided uh, or looked at the prospect of developing the onshore facilities of the Baths into, uh, you know, a, a, a restaurant, uh, a gym, uh, a cafe under uh, – un, you know, on the ground floor, et cetera, and uh, they put the proposal to the council. The council uh, accepted it and uh, and leased it out to them for a period of time. I think it was a 90-year lease. And so private enterprise stepped up and developed it. But the problem, the mistake they made, in my view, was that, that they developed facilities. The dressing room facilities was just so small. We couldn't have all fitted in there and it couldn't have serviced our needs. So I wandered over to the Brighton uh, Yacht Club and made an inquiry and, and they sort of welcomed us. So that's how it happened. So some stayed because of the, the safety of the cage and others took to the open water, which was what we were doing actually towards the end out of the Brighton bars. We weren't swimming in the bars. We actually would get chains there and showered there and sauna there, but we'd swim around the Brighton Pier and, and courses we developed. Tell me about those courses because you've got names for them. Yeah, names for them. Well, the, the first name, there's a lot of gratuitous naming, of course, because people jumped on the bandwagon. But look, the courses were basically a no-brainer, which was straight around the pier, and a big course, which is, what? well, well in, instead of the no-brainer, which is probably a K1.2, we started to do another course uh, called a big course, um, which was to swim off in the direction of Greenpoint to a, a marker marker and turn around and could basically continue on the on, uh, across the uh, – the course that we were doing on the no-brainer, and uh, that was a 2K course as, a, as opposed to a 1.2K course. There's another one I've uh, I've heard of. Yes. Morning Glory. Oh, look. yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Short 250-metre swim. That's it. That, that'll be it, yeah. <laughs> Don't know much about that. And so uh, is there – is there still a little bit of ribbing that goes on between the kind of the, the, the two fractions? Well, yeah, possibly. Yeah, um, we so developed the term. I call them um, battery hens because, you know, they, they'd stay within the confine of the cage and um, we were free rangers. We were out and about and tea baggers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's that sort of stuff that goes on. Do we ever see John swimming in the baths these days? Or? Look, I look, look I actually, I go to the, I, I uh, actually go and have a swim once a year in the baths just to keep up the continuity. But I haven't swum there since 1998, which is 22 years now, because when we crossed over the Yacht Club, I, I, I took to the open water and I enjoy the open water. And, uh, you know, lapping and doing the rectangular course around the Brighton Bars can be a bit monotonous. But, look, it's a great facility and it's beautifully run by uh, the current management, Matt Painter, who does a fantastic job down there. He's taken it to the next level. Well, he's taken it to the next two or three levels higher than what we had it as as a committee of management because it's the funding that's available through the initiative of private enterprise. G'day. Kia ora. I wanted to take a quick break to tell you about Ocean Fit. 
Back in 2009, OceanFit started as an ocean swim school on the golden sands of Bondi Beach. But now, we've become so much more. We deliver our world-leading training to hundreds of swimmers every summer on beaches throughout Australia, and thousands learn from our free educational resources online. Our Swim Scout directory, available on our website and app, will help you find a swim buddy, connect with social swimming groups, and discover swim events throughout the country. You can also participate in one of our events, escape with us on a wet and wild weekend, or immerse yourself on a boutique ocean swimming holiday at home or abroad. So what are you waiting for? Dive right in at oceanfit.com.au. Enjoy the rest of this episode and swim free. Tell me about the the scene down there. We've got on the left-hand side of the baths is essentially completely open. On the right-hand side, you've got the, what would you call that? Kind of almost like a lagoon, basically. Well, okay, that's inside the attenuator and inside the um, – it's an area provided uh, because of the existence of the breakwater and and the attenuator, which which is a wall that the Yacht Club have built to protect their craft that faces northeast, it faces a city, and the wall comes up and down on the tide. So, And then we've got the dog beach, but there is a problem that's um, – and the channel um, – and there is a problem now with uh, the, the building up of sand because of the various movement. And the beach there has actually increased in width remarkably over the last two or three years. There is a, a bit of a problem. And, uh, well, as I say, because, well, look, I don't know if it goes back to the implication of widening the heads. And they've lost the beaches at Portsea. Well, the sand doesn't leave the earth. It's got to relocate somewhere else. And I'm of the theory it's moved up here and deposited itself at Brighton Beach. So, in the 50s, before the breakwater, that area was premium beach uh, for, for beachgoers. And then the breakwater came, the, the beaches were denuded one side of the breakwater and built up the other, which is what happens with the ebb and the flow and the to and the fro. That's why beaches are maintained. And, uh, well, that's the scene there at the moment. And I noticed a sign went up uh, recently on the uh, on the pier there. Uh, yes. They closed the pier down? Well, they've closed the pier down. Uh, that's the, old, the concrete pier now. And, and that concrete pier 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, replaced the old wooden pier. And, okay, the ravages of the time, the natural depreciation, the deterioration of assets and uh, budgetary constraints and whatever else, that, that's an excuse provided by government, of course. Um, the Brighton Pier's fallen into a state of, well, they say uh, it, it's unsafe uh, and they've closed it. Is that a concern for... You know the swimmers, or is it a concern for that? Maybe the baths are in a similar state. No, the baths are in pretty good nick. I imagine that's no, not a, a direct concern for swimmers. I mean, basically, we enter off the beach now. Where when the old days traditionally we started off the Brighton Pier, off the off the uh, lower jetty, which incidentally in 1933 was a scene of the only successful for the shark, not the victim, shark attack. Uh, a fellow there called Norman Vincent Clark. Clark was taken by a shark on February the 14th, 1933, at the very spot we we would launch our swims traditionally in the in the old time, you know, in the old days. Are sharks a, a problem within the bay? Well, I, I, there are sharks in the bay. There's no question that there are sharks in the bay. I mean, the bay's a pretty healthy body of water, and I'm sure there are. Uh, I've seen them on a couple of occasions. Um, but uh, thank you. God, they haven't been a problem for anyone since probably 1954 when a fella called Wishart was taken by shark on the Portsea back beach, but that's technically not Port Phillip Bay. 
when you go for a swim, you're essentially with a group, but you're really by yourself. It's it, because your head's down. You can't exactly talk to people while you're, you're going, like cyclists maybe or runners. And the swim, especially in the cold, tends to be quite short in, in context. But all the all the fun and all the community happens when you you know before you get into the water and when you get out. And I've heard stories of of the icebergers filling up the the shower rooms and the the saunas and the steam rooms. Sounds like wheeling and dealings going on, and all sorts of things are happening. Can you talk about what the scene is like outside of the water? Well, that's right. Look, swimming is is a socially distant sport, and and, and uh, we in the old days we'd sit off as a group and we'd uh, always group up at various markers around the course. We were doing a big course. We'd have one, two stops, wait for the slower swimmers. But you are absolutely right that the the um, the conviviality of it occurs before the swim and after the swim. And well, if when we're stopping and waiting for each other, there's a bit of that during the swim. But yeah, that's where the that's where the the sociability of it is, and the conviviality of it is, is before and after the swim, and people break off and go and have coffee or ring up and arrange to have swims. But look, the timetable now for swimming has basically been automatically developed over time, and people know there's a swim on at seven thirty, eight thirty, four o'clock, whatever. They meet in their little individual groups and swim off. The other great thing about open water swimming is the fact that you're stripped down, you're in your your cozies, put a cap on, goggles, and it doesn't matter who you are in society, at that moment in time, you've got everything on display. You're you're just like everyone else. And so what kind of characters and what kind of people within the community make up the icebergers? Well, they, they they come from a, a a broad range of activities over over you know human human life. Uh, everyone everyone goes to doctors and lawyers. I'm, you know, doctors and lawyers aren't overrepresented. Let me tell you, I don't know why people need to overrepresent the medical profession, the legal profession. But there's people. Look, there, there's people from all sorts of life and all sorts of ages and all sorts of shapes, and uh, they fancy a cold water swimming because they believe it's doing them good. Uh, it's a belief I hold, and uh, I know science is starting to come our way a little bit now, isn't it, with cold water therapy and treatment and things. So, look, it's something that people do because they, they enjoy doing it from all walks of life. It's just a melting pot. It is. It is. And the science now for the cold water is basically just proving what icebergers have always known. Well, I, well, I, that yeah, they've always known it because it's a it's a it's a part of the internal belief system. This is what they believe, whether it's can stand scientific investigation, the rigors of scientific investigation. I don't know. Um, I've had cardiologists tell me it's a very very dangerous thing to do, but uh, I've been doing it since 1973, and I'm going to do it until uh, till I'm the oldest bloke doing it. Hopefully. Tell me about some of the events that uh, have become tradition within the club. Well, uh, we, we hold a winter classic and, and there's a big course swim on, which is over 2Ks. There's a Melbourne architect called Robbie Robinson and I think he holds a record for the most uh, times that uh, that event has been swum in by an individual. So people set themselves to do it. Uh, then there's a shorter course because, you know, as a group gets older, We've got we've got to be careful with safety and things like that, and that's the problem. When people group up, there's all sorts of things happen, you know, in terms of physical requirements for safety and etc. So look, we hold a two k swim, we hold a k swim, and probably a little winter dash. But 
And then at the end of the uh, in the end of the year, there's a summer uh, event called after uh, two great swimmers, uh, Olsen Hooper, and my great mate uh, Robbie Hooper, and his friend John Olsen. Um, uh, they we get in a, in a period costume with a cap and period togs, and they swim. It's a handicap event. Tell me about the ageing swimmers within the group. Is it being rejuvenated with the youngers? Well, the there are group? younger swimmers coming through all the time and the group's getting bigger and bigger. I mean, it started off with myself and Robbie Hooper and probably Greg Fountain a couple of years after that. So for, year, for four or five years, there was three of us. And now I think there's over 120 on the list. So that's a, it's a big group. And that's through now the Yacht Club. And also there's a group that swims out of the Middle Brighton bars, but also there's another group down at Dendy Beach and and another group I'm aware of at Mentone. So there are groups of people that are now swimming and individuals have taken to it too. And you see footballers in it, but they just stand up to their waist and shiver when they – the real benefit is in, is in getting in and under and moving. As I once told Eddie Maguire when I saw these Collingwood footballers standing down there, you know, up to their waist, shivering. I said, Eddie, if you want to win a flag, get in and under and move in. And they did and they won. So I'm taking credit for it. Fantastic. Swimming is uh, its obviously a huge part of your life. We're here at your house at the moment, and it's not just swimming. You've got your own storied background in different sports. Can you tell me about that? Oh, look, I played a bit of suburban football. And I was- very fortunate to have a very injury-riddled career with Frankson and the VFA um, in back in the wild old days of, of the seventies. So, and I, I had I had a I got myself on the list at the St Kilda Football Club one year, but it, it didn't progress beyond that because I had spent more time on the surgeon's table than I did anywhere else. But that's football. And when we look around your house, there's um, plenty of pictures of boxers and yes. yourself were a boxer. Well, I was in the amateurs years ago. At, at, at the at university level, yes. But you've also met some amazing. I've athletes. been very fortunate to be uh, highly involved in the career of Sam King Solomon, and the travel overseas with him, and was with him when he when he won his world title at forty one forty two in uh, in Dusseldorf, where he beat the um, and I'm saying this in italics a super champion Felix Strum, but uh, Strum's been discredited as, as having been a drug cheat. So Sam stepped up and beat a bloke on drugs at 42 years of age when they gave him no chance of winning. He beat Strum twice, actually. So and, that's, and, and what an inspiration he is, Sam King Solomon. He actually lived here for four or five years while that was happening and still is a regular attender here, Sam. Yeah, your house is a bit of a, I mean, we would call it back home a halfway house where you, you bring in the athletes and they... They're all. They're always, you just. You just love the. You just love being a part of it. All. Well, it's fantastic. You know, I, I, um, I'm fortunate that they involve me. I've had a lot of fun traveling around the world with John and Sam, and another young kid I was involved with, Adam Kahoulis, who's an Australian who, who fought for an Australian title after um, eight eight professional fights. Look, athletes are the way to go. They're they're great people. They're, they're dedicated. Uh, and and to see them firsthand prepare for their events and to follow them from you know conception to achievement or failure it's 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 a great great experience and i love the involvement yeah the uh, the greatest supporter i can see it oh happy to do it 
And the the future for John, uh, I notice you've you've built a sauna in uh, in your garage. <laughs> my, there. my future is to keep on doing <laughs> what I'm doing for as long as I can possibly do it. Keep myself as fit uh, as I can, so I can be as viable as I can, I can in the foreseeable future. I've got no ambitions other than that to maintain my health and uh, and my involvement. But we're all depreciable assets, Andre. We all get old and we all depreciate and we and we face our ultimate demise and that's it. That's the story for all of us. I feel like, though, as long as you're around, uh, the open water swimming community's got someone who will go in to fight for them and, and so I can see the sport here in Melbourne only getting greater and greater. Well, it, it's it, winter, winter swimming is actually... Um, Really, it's 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 a great great sport. It, it gets bigger and bigger all the time as people decide to take it on, and and whatever effort they they're making is a good effort on their own behalf because they'll receive the benefit of it. But the thing is, when you're going to do cold water swimming, you've got to have a hat on your head, and after you've been into the cold water, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to get yourself as warm as you possibly can and get moving again. But people will learn that, and and. Uh, you know, I hope that there's more facilities established around um, Port Phillip Bay. I don't know why life-saving clubs that exist around Port Phillip Bay don't actually operate in the winter. You know, put in a sauna and, and you'll, you'll, you'll get a life around your club in the winter as well. You don't have to close down for the winter. There's some great winter swimming. There's great winter days, and here's an example of it. 14 degrees, blue sky. Yeah, it does seem a bit of a waste to have clubs sitting around that are, uh, are so niche. Yeah, and it's great to see that the yacht clubs, you know, especially down here, uh, Blackrock and Brighton, are are opening their their service or their club up to. Well, the Brighton Yacht Club are being fantastic. The the, uh, the previous commodore down there, um, David Atkinson, who decided. Well, Dave was was the driver, of course, but um, he decided to spend the wealth of the club on the club itself, and he refurbished it in such a way that was very welcoming to us as icebergers. He you know the provision of a gym steam room and a sauna room, and it's just fantastic. I mean, the yachties tend not to use the steam in the sauna. They might get in the gym a bit, but certainly not the steam in the sauna, but it's basically uh, for the use of the cold water swimmers. Thanks for your time today, John. It's fantastic. Those stories are, are great, and it's, it's been an honour to talk to the founder of the Brighton Icebergers, the world-famous Brighton Icebergers, and thanks thanks so much. My pleasure, Andre. Thanks, thank, thanks for affording me the opportunity to do so. All the best to you. Cheers. Cheers.